Let's have a, a word of prayer together. So I invite you to, uh, to bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for this Holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come together here and, and to worship thee in spirit and in truth. Father, our hearts long for the truth. We pray for the spirit to give us discernment that we may be able to detect what is true from what is error. We ask that the Holy Spirit be poured out into our hearts and into our minds, not only to cleanse us, Lord, as we ask forgiveness, but to lead us uh, to the foot of the cross and to Jesus, who is the truth, the life, and the way. Father, we pray for those who couldn't be here. We ask that you be very near to them, be with those who are are ill, uh, and uh, comfort them, uh, Lord, and uh, uh, be with your church. We're coming into a time where we need to press together and to do the work while we still have time, that people may be saved and be able to see Jesus face to face. Please give me the words to speak today. May they be uh, your words, not my opinions. And soften hearts to be prepared for this truth. I humbly ask for this in the name of Jesus who is so worthy. Amen. <clears throat> Entitled this particular study, God's Anniversary Day. You know, the war we're engaged in, this uh, great controversy that rages uh, between the forces of good and the forces of evil, has at its core... Uh, this very subject that we're about to discuss. And, and uh, I mean, it's, it really is that important. Um, this war started over the understanding, or maybe it's better to say the misunderstanding of this subject, which is vital uh, in knowing truth from error. Everything in this struggle comes down to the truth concerning the character of God. It does. That's the foundational, uh, the what you might call the nucleus of this conflict. That's what it comes down to. When I was young, I was taught very early on by my parents that I would be known by the company I keep. Have you ever heard that? You'll be known by the company you keep. That having They taught me that having a good character meant a lot. It meant that I had integrity. It meant that I could be trusted. Um, Dad told my brother and I several times, he said, guard your name. He, he instilled that in us. Guard your name because it was something we would carry with us the rest of our life. Having a good name means you're someone that others can trust. They can trust that you're going to do the right thing. You know, it's not like you may be their best friend, but there's that little trust there if you have a good name. Well, that family has a good name. You know they're not going to do harm to you necessarily, right? They have a good name. A good name is very valuable. You know the Bible says that? Proverbs 22 verse 1 says, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. A loving favor rather than silver and gold. Isn't that amazing? Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 1 says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. That's an interesting statement. A worthy name and good favor, the Bible says, are true riches. Isn't it amazing how we look at the world and what's considered to be valuable, the Bible says really isn't valuable? 
It's like the complete opposite, you know. A worthy name and good favor. Both may be lost by associating with those who lack a good name. Even though we do uh, not actually join them in their ways, uh, it can do harm, can it? I remember, you know, as a teenager, you get in with the wrong crowd. And uh, my dad told me one time, told me and my brother, we got in with this crowd and we were going to do uh, particular. I'm not going to tell you what we were going to do. But my dad got wind of it and he said, if you go to do that, I will call the sheriff myself. That was pretty strong. He's like, really? My dad's going to call the sheriff on me. Dad had my best good at heart, didn't he? But I was hanging around with the wrong crowd, people who didn't have a good name. And you know, when you get in a group, you get that kind of mob mentality and the devil can sway it. See, that's what he did there when Jesus was brought up before Pilate. The devil got into the crowd and there were demons there and they they got that mob mentality and them demons swayed the crowd. Crucify him, crucify him. They weren't using their head, were they? Good reputation based on character is a priceless possession. In fact, one of the intimate rewards to be bestowed upon the saved is the new name that's promised all who overcome the world. We're going to get a new name. Revelation 2 verse 17 says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written. Is that interesting? Which no man knoweth saving he that receives it. One of the more common ancient uh, customs was that of the use of a white and black stone by uh, jurors to determine uh, acquittal or, or conviction in a trial. And here it means the overcomer has been acquitted and he receives a new name. In the Bible, uh, a person's name often stands for his character. And a new name would indicate what? A new character. A changed person. The experience of spiritual rebirth, of the transformation of character, the scripture is telling us, can be understood only by personal experience. No man knoweth saving he that receives it. And no matter what the situation we find ourselves in and what choices are brought before us, we can make the right decision and glorify God only if we really know Him. And to really know God means to know His character. To know His character means that we have been given spiritual discernment and can discern between what really comes from Him and what is really a deception of the devil. Because if you don't know God, you're going to be deceived. There is a stark contrast between good and evil. Would you agree with that? There's a stark contrast between light and darkness. There is a stark contrast between God and Satan. And if you don't know God, 
you're left with the default, aren't you? You know Satan. So when we know the character of God, we will also know that we can trust him because he has a good name, see? He has a good name. I want to look at a great example of this from the book of Exodus. This is shortly after the the golden calf incident. And Moses was told by God, remember, to hew out two tables of stone. Because what did he do with the originals? He broke them. He comes down from the mountain and here they are, you know, worshiping the golden calf and and they were broken. So God says, I want you to hew out two more tables of stone. Now God still wrote on those tables of stone with his own finger, didn't he? But he says, hew them out and, and then meet with me again. Come up to the mountain. And here in Exodus 34... Verse 5, we'll begin with that. It says, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now that's rather interesting, isn't it? He proclaimed to Moses the name of the Lord. Well, he didn't just say, Hi Moses, I'm God. He he was... uh, uh, more, what's the word I'm looking for? He was more exact. He added a little bit more than that, didn't he? Don't you think it probably means more than that? He just came down and said, hey, this is my name. Well, in verse 6 it says, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. So, God comes down. He stands with Moses. Almost face to face. And it says he proclaimed the name of the Lord. What was he actually telling Moses? In fact, in verse 8, it says, And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Well, the name of the Lord stands for his character. Here, described as consisting of, if if you study this out, you'll find three fundamental qualities here. You find mercy, you find justice, and you find truth. The greatest emphasis is placed upon mercy. Thank God for that. Because God's relationship to us really is based upon what? Mercy. And you read about, John talks about that quite a lot actually. You go to 1 John 4 and and he lays that out. But we see here that there are six different ways in which the Lord manifests love for His people. He's what? Merciful and He's gracious. He's long-suffering. He's abundant in goodness and truth. Keeping mercy for thousands. And today we can probably easily say millions, couldn't we? Or even billions. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So at that time, here's God. He's giving to Moses and explaining, in essence, he's explaining to Moses who he is. 
And this is my character. And I'm a person of integrity and mercy and love and truth. Now, I would say that Moses had never met anyone like that before. Or maybe even since. (laughs) Right? And what Moses do? He recognized this truth and he bowed down and worshipped God. Now, there they were. We're just past the golden calf in the present state of Israel's sorrow and, and their subdued spirit, you could say. Something additional was needed to impart to them hope and assurance. They were feeling pretty guilty, don't you think? What's God going to do to us? What, what have I done, you know? What, what do we feel like when we slip up, right? You see, the law on those tables of stone, they can't be merciful and gracious, can they? Its sole stress was upon correcting. Isn't that what the law is for? It's to point out our mistakes, isn't it? Our flaws, our need of a savior, our need of being changed. You know, so its sole stress was upon rectitude. There was needed a a then a supplemental, you could say, revelation from God, something different of the the character of God. And he relayed this to Moses to relay to the people. I am merciful and loving and true. And I'm a just God. And so in the revelation of the character of God to Moses, Sinai proclaims not only the divine law, okay, but also what? Divine grace. And it is this fact, friends, that we see right here that proves the popular teaching that Sinai, you know, stands for justice but not mercy, that that's dead wrong. I mean, haven't you ever heard, oh, that was the the Old Testament's the law and the New Testament's grace? Well, that's a lie. Sinai's exalted proclamation of grace by no means did away with the law. It didn't do away with justice either, did it? What to do? It actually clarified the, the, the relationship of each two to each other. In a later crisis, if I find it, you, you look back in Numbers 14, Moses actually reminded God of the balance between justice and mercy that he proclaimed to him there at Sinai. If you go to Numbers 14, you read it. Isn't that something to say to God, to have such a relationship with God as if God didn't know, but to remind Him, wait a minute, Lord, there is a balance between justice and mercy. You told me this, remember back at Sinai? (laughs) And it's this same uh, unchanging character of God that gives poor, helpless sinners like us, right, hope of eternal life, my friends. And inasmuch as there can be no trust in one who is not true, God qualifies for our trust by being abundant in truth. Truth lies at the root of character, doesn't it? Moral character, 
it is the precise opposite of hypocrisy. Is it not? Remember what Jesus said about hypocrites? He said, woe to you. He said, scribes and Pharisees, what? Hypocrites. And you'll find throughout the Bible and inspired writings that that's one of the things that God hates the most is a hypocrite. Because it's the opposite of truth. But here at Sinai, we see the Lord himself personally proclaiming to Moses his character traits. He's sharing with Moses the truth about his name. See? He is laying out all the evidence to, uh, to the evidences to Moses that he has a good name. One that is truth. One that can be trusted. These same qualities are also expressed in the law, in the Ten Commandments. Now, why did Moses bow down and worship? I mean, here's another aspect to kind of think about. Was it because God would punish him if he didn't? Was God trying to scare Moses into being righteous and bow down to him out of fear? Well, of course not. Moses believed God was who he said he was. Moses walked with God. Moses knew God, see? He had a relationship with God and knew God's character, and he could not but love God with his entire heart because of it. Moses came to a point, and through his experience and gaining a relationship with the Lord, that he knew God's heart. And he knew that God had Moses' best interest at heart along with his people. There is a false belief in this world that even pervades the very core of Christianity. And it is due to a misunderstanding of God's name, of God's character. And this false understanding, you know, among others, is that God uses scare tactics to get his people to do what's right. That he uses fear. That he uses this, this tactic in an attempt to bring reformation to his people. Is this the God that you serve? Is this the God of the Bible, really? I'll tell you, it's not the God of the Bible, friends. And it's not the God that I would choose to serve. Would you choose to serve such a God? Now, while it's true that God will allow certain situations to occur in order to reach us, sometimes it just gets our attention, doesn't it? We're distracted and he wants, you know, he allows certain things to happen, mostly because of our choices. <laughs> sometimes God steps in even when we choose something. Uh, but I won't go into that. But sometimes that does happen. But it's not true that God uses intimidation to get his way. Love never chooses to use coercion. Not true love. Not agape. God does not force or, or, or coerce the will. The devil uses coercion all the time. But God loves us enough to let us make our own decisions. Now we have to live with those decisions, don't we? But what is it about God? It's his mercy, isn't it? 
That when we make a bad decision, He picks us up, brushes us off. He doesn't do the, I told you so deal. He says, I love you. Now, can we have a conversation? (laughs) And talk about this, right? He's selfless. And He seeks to win our hearts by His example. You know, you remember when they came and they took Jesus from the garden and, and, and Peter and John followed at a distance. And Peter, he got distracted, didn't he? He went in and he, he stood around the rabble. And what happened? He became a part of that crowd. He was hanging out with the wrong crowd, wasn't he? John followed in and kept his eyes on the Lord. But here, Peter, denying the Lord... Three times to that rabble. Jesus comes out and, and, and in our view as a human, we would say he is just in condemning Peter for denying him for what he did. But that's not the character of God, is it? Jesus looked at Peter with encouragement and pity. And that broke Peter's heart. I mean, even more than it could have been broken. That's what Peter needed. Did you know that? He needed that. That's the character of God. That we mess up. How could you mess up worse than Peter? Deny your Savior. You've lived with him for three and a half years. And when it really came, you boasted. You know, I'll do everything for you. I would die for you. But when it came down to the test, not so much, huh? Yet, Here's a loving look from the Savior. I forgive you, Peter. That's God. That's what selfless love is. He seeks to win our hearts by His example. You see? John chapter 5, verse 30 says, I can of mine own self do nothing. This is Jesus speaking. He says, as I hear... I judge, and my judgment is just. Doesn't this sound like what was told to Moses? Because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. You see, the God of the Bible is not a selfish God. He's not full of pride. He's not full of envy. It's contrary to him because he he does not sin. See, Nor has he ever sinned. God, what's the Bible say? God is love. And I believe to really have a correct understanding of the character of God, we need to look at the life of Jesus. Would you agree to that? Jesus is God's, we're told this, Jesus is God's thought made audible. That's a profound statement. He is the Word. The Word that was made flesh. And not only was He made flesh, but... John also says, he dwelt among us. That's incredible just to think about it as well, isn't it? But the Bible tells us that God only is immortal. And it also shows us that the Ten Commandments are actually a reflection of God's character. In John 14, (coughs) verses 6 and 7, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known who? 
my father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. So Jesus himself is saying, hey, we have the same character, the the father and I. Because if you've seen me, you've seen the father, right? And what was that character? It was what was revealed to Moses, wasn't it? There at Sinai. Christ came to reveal the Father. And for all practical purposes, those who saw Him actually saw the Father. Now, they're not the same being, are they? So, what did Jesus do? If we're going to look at Him to find out about the Father and find out about the character of God, well, what did Jesus do? How did He live? What words did He use? The answers to these questions give us an accurate picture of who our Father in heaven is and what kind of character he has. Look at John 15, verse 9. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. Now he's talking about the Ten Commandments. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. You see what he's saying? Looking back, Jesus could say with, with perfect confidence, I have kept my Father's commandments. And the Bible says that He did always those things that pleased His Father. You find that in John 8. Then Jesus said unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am He, and that I do nothing of Myself, but as My Father hath taught Me. I I speak these things, and He that sent Me is with Me. The Father hath not left Me alone, for I do always those things that please Him. And according to Peter, who is speaking by inspiration and also lived with him, remember, for three and a half years, Peter said, Jesus did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Now this tells us, I believe, a lot about the name or character of God, doesn't it? Let me share this with you. It's from the Desire of Ages. Page 24. It says, As he went about doing good, and this is speaking of Jesus, as he, he went about doing good and healing all who were afflicted by Satan, he made plain to men the character of God's law and the nature of his service. His life testifies that it is possible for us also to obey the law of God by, excuse me, but to obey the law of God. By his humanity, Christ touched humanity. By his divinity, he lays hold upon the throne of God. As the Son of Man, he gave us an example of obedience. As the Son of God, he gives us power to obey. I like how she says the character of God's law. He made plain to men the character of God's law. So we can say that Christ is the living representative of the law. What it really is. He kept the law of God. 
Never once did he choose to break it. Never once did he choose to sin. Never. He kept the law perfectly because, well, it's his character, isn't it? He is the law. (coughs) And he can give us the power to have that same character by keeping the law like he did, perfectly. It's an incredible goal to have. So the Ten Commandments can also be called the, the character traits of God. We could also say that the Ten Commandments are the name of God, and it is a very good name. Now, I want to take a look at the Fourth Commandment right now, for this part of the law really cries out the truth about the entire character of God. Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. We're familiar with this. This is the Fourth Commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the first day. No, it doesn't say that, does it? And rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. You know, this is the the longest of the commandments. And it's partly because it is very specific. What is so special about this day? What is it that you see about this day? Does God want you to keep it because he says so? Or you'll be punished? Or is there a different reason? Let's take a look back at creation for a moment. Why did God create man? Well, in this great controversy, (coughs) there were a number of angels that decided to go with the adversary and they left heaven, didn't they? So you could look at it and say, well, yeah, God did create man. He wanted to replace, in essence, those angels who had fallen because they're not going to exist anymore after... You know, this is all over with, are they? So you can almost say, well, there was kind of a vacuum in heaven, wasn't there? All right. That's, that's one thing. But the prophet says this. How great the love of God is. God made the world to enlarge heaven. And I like this part. He desired a larger family. He wanted a larger family. Because he's a creator. He is love. And he wanted to create a being in his own image to enlarge heaven and increase the family. He wants to share his love. This is consistent with what we read in scriptures about God, isn't it? In 1 John 4, 16, notice what we read. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. And we can see this love clear back in the beginning. God is love, and he wanted a larger family, so he created man. Not just to watch them from a distance. You know, there used to be in the the 1700s, early 1800s, you know, and there's still some today, deists. They think God just... In fact, some of these 
these weird theories about UFOs and other planets planting man's seed here and him growing and God is not uh, active with man in his life every day. No, that's not the, the true God. God is very active. He didn't create man just to watch him from a distance, but to interact with man. As we do, we interact with our own families, don't we? God, the creator of all good things, would commune with Adam and Eve, especially on the Sabbath day. And he would bless and he would sanctify them. Genesis 3 and verse 8, it says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now we're Hoosiers, we're in an agricultural you know, part of the country. Many of us maybe have grown up uh, on a farm or doing work for a farmer. We know what it means, to the cool of the day means. Especially in the summertime and you're out baling hay. <laughs> you like the cool of the day, right? And here God, he's walking in the garden as his habit was in the cool of the day. But Adam and Eve had chosen to disobey God, see? And so it says, And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. But God wanted to be near them, see? He created them, not just to see him from a distance, but they were part of the family. White says this, Manuscript Releases, Volume 17, page 351. In Eden, each day's labor brought to Adam and Eve health and gladness, and the happy pair greeted with joy the visits of their Creator, as in the cool of the day He walked and talked with them. Daily, God taught them His lessons. One more, Book of Education, page 21. Often they were visited by his messengers, the holy angels, and from them received counsel and instruction. Often as they walked in the garden in the cool of the day, they heard the voice of God and face to face held communion with the eternal. Just like your children come to the parents. And the parents oversee them and spend time with them and teaching them and nurturing them. God wanted to be with us. And he still does, more than ever. He set apart the seventh day of the week specifically to be with us, to be with his family. Adam and Eve chose to sin, and thus, of course, it entered our world. And because of sin, our thoughts wandered away from God. We soon forgot to meet with him on our special day together, our special anniversary of God's creation once a week, that memorial on the seventh day. And as the people of God further and further forgot about him in this special day, they eventually became captives in Egypt. But the Creator ever missed his family. And he longed to free them so they could meet with him again. So God raised up one who could deliver his people. And through the ministry of this man, that was Moses, he brought our fathers out of the land of Egypt to the base of his holy mountain. And he audibly described his character to us again and also placed it onto tables of stone with his own finger. 
And through time and his teaching, they were led to the promised land where they would find rest. Now let me ask you a question. Because you were familiar with the story, aren't we? Were the Ten Commandments abolished as soon as they entered the promised land? Was the Sabbath changed as soon as they entered the promised land because they had entered into that rest? No. Of course not. And I'll talk about that in a bit, but keep that in the back of your mind. But even though they entered the promised land, it really wasn't long before they started missing that anniversary day with God again. Doing their own things on the day that He set aside to be with them. Specifically with them. They stood God up on their date, you could say. (laughs) And this never changed His feelings for them, though. As He is love... And he so wanted to be with them again. How could God both deal with the sin problem and also gain back that communion with his lost family? How could he do it? There was a plan, wasn't there? And If I was to ask you what is probably the most well-known scripture in all the Bible, what would you tell me? It's almost always unanimous. Nobody says, well, Romans 8, 28. No one says Matthew 24. It's John 3, 16. Well, there's a reason for it. For God so loved the world that he gave. That explains the character of God in a nutshell. Doesn't it? He gave his only begotten son that whosoever, that means anybody, Whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Paul says in Galatians 4 verse 4, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. To do what? To redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And this has quite a lot to do with the Sabbath. You see, God missed us and He wanted to be with us again. And so He sent His Son so that we would not perish. What does that say about God's character? There aren't words to describe it other than what God said Himself. There to Moses. Is this the act of a God that supposedly uses scare tactics? (laughs) No. Is this the act of a tyrant? No. This is indeed the act of supreme love, isn't it? Exodus 25 and verse 8 says, And let them make me a sanctuary. Why? So they can come and bow down before me and I can tell them what to do and, and, and I have perfect control over all of them. Is that why God said it? He says that I may dwell among them. And this was a precursor for sending forth his son. God wants to dwell with us. He wants to be invited into our homes. He wants to live within our hearts. Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall bring forth a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is 
God with us. How how much closer could God get to us than sending his son to become like us? Do you see God's character of love displayed here? There's no coercion here. Only love reaching out to us. God wants to be with us. He created us and spent time in the cool of the day there in the Garden of Eden face to face with our first parents. He set apart the seventh day as a special day to be with them and us and so we could rest in the presence of Him. There is security with Him, isn't there? You know, isn't that what wives are to feel with their husband? They feel secure. They feel protected, see? Where does that come from? It comes from God. We feel protected in His presence. We feel love in His presence. I said earlier that the fourth commandment is is part of the law that really cries out the truth about the entire character of God. You see, at the heart of the Sabbath is the Father. He's at the heart of the Sabbath. Paul lays it out rather well for us in Romans 8, verse 15. He says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry what? Abba, Father. The word translated cry usually means a loud cry that is expressive of deep emotion. Adoption is what? It's the taking and, and treating of a stranger as one, one's own child. And Paul applies that term to Christians because God treats them as his own sons and daughters. Even though by nature they were strangers and enemies. This implies that since we by nature had no claim on God, His act of adopting us is one of pure selfless love. It also implies that as adopted sons and daughters, we are now under His protection and care. And that, in loving gratitude for that, we ought to manifest the the spirit of children in obeying Him in all things. And we will run to, you know, when your, your children have been away from you for a while, let's say you had to go on a trip and somebody was watching them. When you return, they, aren't they glad to see you? They run and wrap their arms around you. When we see Jesus, won't we want to run and wrap our arms around him? Galatians 4 and verse 6. Paul again, he says, And because ye are sons, and and that's, human beings, sons and daughters, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We've become a part of the family again. And so with deep emotion, we praise our Father. We cry, Abba, Father. And we meet Him on the day He's made for us to rejoice with Him and be in His presence. I find it interesting that the word Sabbath in English is spelled S-A-B-B-A-T-H. I just find that so 
So interesting. I think it's very appropriate that the word Abba is in the heart of the word Sabbath. I, I did a little looking, you know, and there, there are a number of words, all kinds of languages. What is there, like 127 languages or something around the world? And a number of them have virtually the same word Sabbath in their language. Isn't that remarkable? There are... The word for Sabbath in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Very interesting. Then off the, off my head, that have a b b a in the heart of the word that they have for Sabbath. Ancient Syriac, Arabic, Greek, and Hebrew, Italian, Latin, Portuguese, English. <laughs> Abba, Father. You could say that it is his day because it has his name, the Sabbath. It has his name. And it is a sign that we are indeed the sons and daughters of God. So we can and we do cry, Abba, Father, if we rest in his assurance of forgiveness and we rest in his love. That's why the Sabbath is a sign that we are his people. Did you know that? Ezekiel 20, verse 12. Moreover, also, I gave them, just as he has given his son, of course, that was much later, he has given us the Sabbath. Moreover, also, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctified them. He's our God, and the Sabbath points to him as the creator and the sanctifier and the redeemer. The Sabbath is a sign of Christ's power to make us holy. And to anyone who received the Sabbath as a sign, it will be a delight. It's something we look forward to. Just like we look forward to anniversary days with our families or with our wife. Jesus said, because they were trying to, the, the leaders of Israel trying to confuse things about the Sabbath. They taught a number of things that were you know, added to the Sabbath that made it a burden. And so Jesus said in Mark 2, verse 27, 28, he said, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. God didn't create man because he had a Sabbath and he needed someone to keep it. Instead, the Creator knew that man, a creature of his own hand, he's the potter, we're the clay, right? Needed opportunity for moral and spiritual growth, for character development. Time to be with him. He needed time in which his own interests as man and pursuits should be subordinated to the study of character and, and what the will of God is, who God is. As revealed in nature, of course, later on it became what? It became His Word. So we have essentially two books about God, don't we? We have nature and we have His Holy Word. And the seventh day, Sabbath was ordained of God to meet this need. If Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath day, here's some things, then the Sabbath must be the Lord's day. But we don't hear that. Today, do we? What do we hear is the Lord's Day? Sunday. 
John had a vision, you know, in Revelation 1 verse 10. He had a vision on the Lord's day. Well, that had to be the Sabbath day. Uh, Did you know that it is the only day so designated and claimed by God in the Bible as His? (laughs) It's the only day. In writing the Ten Commandments, God called it the Sabbath of the Lord. We read that there in Exodus 20. It's the Sabbath of the Lord. In Isaiah, he's quoted as saying, the Sabbath, my holy day. So he says it's his day. And the fact is that the God who created the world and made the Sabbath was Jesus Christ himself. John chapter 1. In the beginning was who? The Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. If you look at verse 14, and the Word was made flesh. And what? Dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul clearly identified Jesus as the Creator in Colossians 1. He called Him God's dear Son in whom we have redemption through His blood, for by Him were all things created. Jesus is the author, the maker, the sanctifier, the architect of the Sabbath. Remember, one of the things Jesus came to do, He came to show us the Father. And he said that he and the Father are what? One. They're in unity, one with another, and have the same selfless character of love. And so we cry to them, Abba, Father. We can have rest from the burden of sin, and we can rest from burdens, period, on the Sabbath, can't we? So we can rest in Jesus spiritually from these burdens and these the guilt of sin, but we rest on the Sabbath from daily burdens too, don't we? Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Boy, when you think of putting a yoke on there, that doesn't sound like rest, does it? But Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find Rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You know, the Greek word for rest there, anaposis, is the word commonly used in the Hebrew Bible to refer to the rest of the Sabbath. Did you know that? Now, some today say that the Sabbath commandment is no longer binding upon us, for they say, we rest in Jesus. Have you heard that? Well, yeah, you don't have to keep the Sabbath day because, well, since the cross, we rest in Jesus. Well, that's not completely accurate. And Paul addresses this in Hebrews 4 quite well. Remember when I said earlier, I said, when they entered the promised land, were the Ten Commandments abolished? When they entered into that rest, did that do away with the Sabbath? Remember when I asked you that? Hebrews 4, verse 9. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Who are those people? What is the sign that you're part of the family of God? The Sabbath. 
For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. This passage nowhere, by the way, says that the seventh day rest was done away with. It doesn't say that anywhere in this passage. So the rest offered today did not replace the seventh day. Instead, they're, comp- they're complementary, see? The sign that we have entered into that rest that Christ provides is the Sabbath. And my friends, as I stated at the beginning of our lesson, understanding the, the, the true character of God is vital in discerning between good and evil, right and wrong, and the deceptions of the devil. We'll find as, the, as we continue our study in the Bible prophecy just how important the Sabbath is to the people of God. God said in Exodus 20, verses 8 to 10, He said, Remember the Sabbath day to what? Keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. We rest, don't we? That doesn't mean we don't do anything. You know, Adventism, there's this saying, you know, I'm going to, what is it, spring into lay activities. Have you ever heard that before? In other words, I'm going to go home and take a nap. Is what they're saying. Well, that's not necessarily what God had in mind. That's not what the Sabbath Sabbath isn't just, I'm going to sleep in all day that day. Now, sometimes, you know, okay, you do whatever, you make your choices. But that's not what the Sabbath is about, is it? The Sabbath is given to us so we can be with God in the cool of the day. To grow in our relationship with Him, we must meet with Him as we do. I say like a loved one on an anniversary. We meet with our God to rest in Him from all our works and our battles with self and our battles with the devil. Uh, We meet with Him to get an education about what true love for Him and for, for our fellow man is all about. Can we dwell with God on the Sabbath if our minds are on worldly things? It's very difficult too, isn't it? Can we dwell with our spouse on an anniversary date if we're talking shop? Not really. <laughs> God says that we have six days to do all that. The seventh day is to be spent with Him. What can you say about the, the Lord's character now based upon the gift of the Sabbath day? Can, can you see that God's character truly is one of love? He wants your love in return. And I will tell you, please don't, Keep the Sabbath for any other reason than that you love God. Because that's what it boils down to, isn't it? And this is what He desires from each one of us. That we choose to love Him as He has chosen to love us. You choose to be with Him and learn of Him and grow with Him and honor Him on His day, a day that He made. You choose because what? Because you love Him. Not because you're scared or because he said so, right? You do it out of love for him. You want to be with him. You know, husbands in the world today, we get beat pretty hard if we forget our, our wedding anniversary, don't we? You know. But what if you had that perfect loving relationship with your wife? Wouldn't you look forward to that day? 
I'm gonna say, this is our anniversary day. I'm going to spend my day with my wife. Nothing's going to distract me at all. And don't the wives look forward to the anniversary day? Oh, you know, I'm going to spend some that day just with my husband. This is how God looks at the Sabbath. He wants to spend this day with us. And if we love him, don't we look forward to I look forward to the Sabbath every week. Now, I still have flaws and I still have the, some selfish reasons why I look forward to the Sabbath. But mainly it's because I love God and I want to be with Him on that day. And I want to fellowship with like-minded people who love God too. Not just because God put it in commandments. It's all a part of His character. So beloved, let's remember our Creator. Let's keep His holy Sabbath day and meet with Him the seventh day of the week. Our anniversary day with God. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do again thank you so much for your undying love for us. Uh, We see who we really are when we look at the law, when we look at Jesus. Uh, We're appalled at times, but we are assured that you have forgiven us. And we see such love for us that you gave Jesus, you gave us your son. And he lived a life showing us who you really are, not who the devil says you are. You are a God of love. You are a God of mercy. And we, we appreciate it with our whole heart. We accept your forgiveness. And we pray for the Spirit to be given that we may be more and more like Jesus, more and more like you every day. Please continue to be with us on this holy Sabbath day, day you created, this anniversary day each week. Continue to be with us as you've promised. Fill our hearts with not only love, but help us to have more understanding of what that love really is. A love for you and a love for each other. We thank you so much for hearing this prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.